This is Nanya, an interview podcast where we get up close and personal with the local entrepreneurs of Vancouver. These self-starters are changing the game of small business, and we get to hear their stories. I will forever be your host, Skylar Dietz, and the following is Nanya Business. Should be good to go. Mic test, one, two. I'm the bottom, you're the top. So nice. Alrighty. Closer to your face <laughs> yeah. is better, but... Okay, you comfy? Very. Okay, great. All right, well, welcome everyone to episode five of Nanya. And we have in the studio today a local boxing legend, a uh, much respected coach (laughs) and uh, partner of the Eastside Boxing Club, um, founder of the Eastside's own Resurrection Spirits, Brian Grant. Welcome, welcome. So, I, no, I say, I say boxing legend. I don't know all. I don't know all about your your boxing history. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you dive into your, your your career a little bit? Like what what got you started in boxing? First of all, uh, I was a little kid with some issues. Okay, <laughs> I was school a lot. Yeah, uh, I started boxing when I was about eighteen, and uh, really helped to serve. I think the best part of what boxing did for me was outside of the boxing ring and outside of the gym. Um, inside the boxing ring, you know, you learn a lot of confidence and discipline and a lot of the things that kind of go along with boxing. And it's kind of cool, which I got to it as well. Yeah. I think it's easy for teenagers and uh, youth to get involved in because it has that aspect. Um, almost always, though, what people think it's going to be and what it ends up being is a completely different thing. And for me, it was a huge life lesson. It was something I've taken that's ca- I've carried with me for the rest of my life. It helped me open a business. It's helped me deal with a lot of other stresses in my life overall. And I think that as a... Um, almost a therapy it's been very valuable to me and i've seen it now in the people that i've coached and i've been able to turn around and coach and i've seen them evolve uh through the sport as well too and you know for me i've never really i know i love pro boxing i watch it i don't think anybody from that i know should become a pro boxer (laughs) i don't recommend it you know it's not an easy way to make money most guys don't make any money and they sacrifice everything for it right so and what was the yeah. perception that you're talking about, like, for yourself? Like, yeah. what was the original perception, and then what did you discover it really was? Um, I kickboxed a little bit when I was younger. and you Before know, you were at, Yeah, before, before I, 18. I, I, yeah, you know, I was like 15, 16, mm-hmm. and I learned a little bit then. But when I started boxing when I was older, it was very much about overcoming my fear. And when you're in a boxing ring, you have no place to run and hide. You're forced to face your fears, and I think that that's a valuable experience for anybody. Most of us. So you like, just you love that. I it's love that. Just, just the truth. It. It's the truth. Right. And that's the you know boxing is a truth serum. I say that to people all the time. Sometimes people are a bit cocky. They get what they need. <laughs> right. Sometimes people are not cocky at all and really need a confidence boost. They get what they need. You know, and right. it's through the sport. Whether they win or lose a fight, their fights are kind of irrelevant to be honest. It's really about overcoming the stuff in the gym and in sparring and facing your failures. You think that like the, so the self discovery. Is like yeah. for you. That's the most important thing it's that you get. The most valuable thing about the sport to and me, that. it's the most valuable thing. You know, other people are in the sport because they want to coach a world champion or whatever they may be. I really coach because I believe in passing along what the sport gave me to other people. And did you think like when you, it was the perception the same as everyone has? It's just like a brutal, like a blue, yeah, blood sport, and just like you <laughs> yeah. just you're just there because you hate your parents. My and, parents were both pacifists. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think my mom put me in jazz dance when I was seven years old. For, okay. She was looking for a, uh, a ballerina, and she got a boxing bartender. <laughs> <laughs> Things don't always turn out the way you hope. But, yeah. 
definitely, you know, a background in dance um, and gymnastics and other stuff when I was a kid, I think actually really helped my boxing, you know, footwork, agility, strength overall. All these things are really translatable. My last guest, um, his name is Ron, and he's a, a karate sensei, and cool. karate champion, but he yeah. talked to me about how the best athletes mm -hmm. in karate have a background in acrobatics and dance. I would not disagree with that. Yeah. We, we get, you know, it's funny, as a coach now for about, like, I don't know, 18 years or something like that a long time nine years with Eastside Boxing um, I see people like every year we get new like contestants for Beer Wars for Aprons for Gloves and just new people coming in the gym probably in the first eight minutes I can see they've played another sport and or what sport they've played right like I'll walk somebody and be like did you used to row and they're like oh I was rowing for UBC how did you know I'm like because your shoulders are huge <laughs> <laughs> right you know I mean like there's just but how they move thing. too right how they move is a really big thing we've got a kid in the gym right now who's a 44 time gold medalist in ballroom dance he's what? 20 years old he has the best footwork in the gym of course he does wow how old is he 20 20 <laughs> yeah he's been dancing since he was a kid wow and is he he's there is he there just training just for fun or for uh, no, he's he had 10 competing fights. oh wow yeah, he's uh i don't think i haven't seen him lose a fight yet so i think he lost a fight earlier on his career when he wasn't boxing very gym but uh, the kid's unbelievable, man. He, he was at the wrong gym. Wrong, yeah, wrong I don't coach. Know, I don't know about that. Yeah. He was just learning. We all lose fights when we're learning. Right? Yeah. So, and and tell us about your boxing career. So since you started at 18, mm -hmm. did you, you did a little kickboxing before that. Did yeah. you have the knack right away? No. You know, mm -hmm. I think I felt like I had some talent for the sport. Like you were saying, I had an athletic background for sure. I always played sports, played rugby, basketball, snowboarding, all sorts of stuff throughout high school. I did quite a lot of martial arts when I was young too, you know, karate, uh, jiu-jitsu, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but it, I never, for some reason, there's something about the sport that I fell in love with. When I started boxing when I was 18, not only was I in the gym six days a week, but I started reading about boxing. I started reading about the history of boxing, studying the greats, you know, Ali, Frazier, and then even further back, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson. And then you start to get into, you know, people that the modern era has not really heard of, you know, guys like Stanley Ketchell, who like, who's that? Fought a 42 round fight at one point, oh. uh, lost the first 19 rounds and then won the fight. You know, there's people wow. uh, from the history of boxing that have just amazing stories. And when you look at the history of boxing too, boxing boxers generally came from the poorest sectors of society. Even in today's current world, the greatest boxers today, Lomachenko, uh, Usek, a, a lot of them are from the poorer areas, i.e. the Ukraine, Russia, other areas of the world that don't have a lot of support. You also look at a ton of Latino fighters from Mexico, South America, they don't have a lot of support in their cultures either as much. Right. So in, in the United States, historically, there was Jews, Italians, uh, and so on and so forth, Irish, and so on and so forth in the history. And then uh, when a lot of the influence from when black people came to the state, they're obviously the sector of the population they from, came from that they were fighting out of. So you really see, I think, the greatest boxers come from the people that have nothing to lose. They're willing to put everything on the line. Right. So it, it's their lifestyle indicates almost indicates like how successful they're going to be in, in the gym yeah, too as, as pros and as world champions now for me like i was saying i don't really i love watching the sport and love watching the skill level those guys have but i don't really think it's a great idea to become a professional boxer you know even as an amateur boxer you have to be very careful head injuries are a part of the sport you can really you know i've been very careful in my life um i've had not too many fights over the years and when I do take a, a solid concussion or get hurt in sparring, I make sure I take time off. So if I feel like I've had my bell rung or any sort of cloudiness after sparring, I'll definitely give myself a few weeks, sometimes even up to a couple months if I feel like I've taken a really big shot. 
Uh, they've proven that a lot of the damage in boxing can be, and in any sport, can be repeated head injury. When you've not recovered from a concussion, then you get hit again. So um, <coughs> there's arguments on both sides. There's talks about now whether headgear is good or not. I don't wear headgear in sparring. Uh, yeah, what's I, your opinion on that? Because like that's it's BC um, boxing regulation now. So right? this is a huge argument both ways. Uh, there's other governing bodies that have got rid of it. At the last Olympics, they got rid of headgear for all male competitors. I believe at the next one, they're also not using it. Okay. So part of what they're looking at is that because there's extra padding, your head is bigger. You've got a couple extra inches. You get hit more often. Right. And those little shots that don't seem like much are actually the ones that are doing cumulative damage. Versus if you take a flush punch right in the chin, the nose, or you know, on the side of the head or in the temple, you're going to get hurt from that shot whether you're wearing headgear or not. The only thing that headgear is doing to me is actually making you take more punches than necessary on a regular basis. Now, for beginners, I always recommend headgear because there's the concern of cuts from elbows or headbutts where inexperienced boxers don't know where to place their head. It's like a hockey check. You know, you know how to take a check or give a check. It's something that you learn over time. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a safe way to hit and get hit. That's exactly right. It. It's the more relaxed you are as a boxer. You know, when you're really intense and you're starting out and you're trying to take everybody's head off, you can get hurt because your neck's really stiff in your groin. And once you learn to relax, your head turns with shots. You actually get hurt a lot less. I spar every week, and I very rarely take a bad concussion. Right. If almost never, actually. Because there's like crazy new developments in the concussion world it's like yeah. unprofessional sports i think the nfl probably has the biggest mm-hmm. development in that because so many pros were suffering and, and dying mm-hmm. from um yeah and they've done more and more studies now there's actually a, a study they do in las vegas every year uh, there's a guy who came up here for last year principal glove john scully the Iceman. he was a pro boxer as well as a golden glove amateur in the states he goes there every year for the testing and he when he's there he's like oh hey what's up thomas Hearns? what like it's a, literally a room filled with all champion boxers and they're testing what these guys have been through uh they tested their baseline years ago and so that what they're doing is working off a lot of these guys aren't getting hit anymore right testing what uh aging is doing to them after they've taken these how they're kind of depreciating yeah and you know some guys seem to be doing really well others not as much but he was actually telling me that the last time he was there they're talking about being able to do genetic tests when you're like 10 years old that can tell your number of concussions not exactly the number but whether or not you're susceptible to having damage later in life and they can tell you you shouldn't be a boxer you shouldn't be a football player wow so this is getting a lot the science of it is becoming i think more and more uh definitive people are understanding more about the head injuries and it's something that can really make the sport and sports in general safer and really mitigate a lot of the risk i think and what do you think because a lot of people have this stigma against boxing obviously it's proven like Mm -hmm. concussions hurt (laughs) Boxing, you can get hurt. It happens. You you puke. Your stomach doesn't feel good. Uh, You can feel cloudy for days. You're weak. You're overall, you're not allowed to train even hard because of the vascularity, blood pumping through your brain. It can injure you more. There's a lot of stuff surrounding it. So, you know, full rest is kind of the only thing uh, that you can do for it. That's really hard for an athlete who's in in the gym all the time, especially someone who's regularly in it for four or five days a week. And if they're training for a fight, you know, if, like, their opponent yep. is training. you got to pull them from a fight. It's one of the hardest things to do. First of all, the opponent as well, you're, you know, they're excited they want to fight. And also, you're, you have to protect your fighter. And, I mean, most fighters, we have a mentality, and they want to continue to go. It's up to mm-hmm. the coaches and the people around them to let them know. You know, I've even seen boxers whose, pro boxers whose careers have gone on for way too long. People are, you know, still letting them fight. 
to me, if someone like that is a friend of mine and telling them, I think your career is over, you need to recognize it and move on and do something else in life. Wow. It's tough. It's a very tough decision for people. Because there's so many, there's so much involved with that. Like, of course, will, but like ego and like commitment. Yeah, to the com- amount of time you put in. It's like, you know, you spent And years. to be told, you just have to stop. Yeah, I mean, there's, I know boxers who have been boxing for eight years putting in time, you know, and then it's like, I'm really sorry, but your career is over. That's a big pill to swallow. But with you know. knowing all this, because this sounds... Like, I understand we've boxed a little bit together, yeah. <laughs> but um, I know a little bit, but yeah. it hasn't slowed me down or yeah. stopped me. It yep. never stopped you. Yeah. Um, other people knowing this, what would what would you hope that they understand with, instead of not trying box, boxing yeah. or not watching boxing? So I think that even without, if you have a head injury, so like you know you shouldn't be getting hit in the head, there's a lot that boxing can still teach you. It has a lot of value. There's a lot of discipline, a lot of the training that can you know get you in great shape and so on and so forth. So I still, you know, recreational boxers are what I would say. There's That's the majority of the people at our gym. Right. They're just there for training and they're just there for the training. Occasionally, maybe they would like to try sparring or other stuff. And some of them like to spar a little bit more regularly to stay in shape and they enjoy the aspects of it. Um, but I'd say the majority of people don't do contact and are, you know, it, it may be light contact blocking and stuff, but not getting hit in the head on a regular basis. So get involved, but you don't have to spar. You don't have to get wailed on. Absolutely not. You know, I think that boxing has a lot of lessons to teach without that. I do believe, though, that by getting in the ring is the biggest part of facing your fears, and that, no matter who you are, can have something to teach you. Unfortunately, if you've had a number of head injuries already, I would recommend that that aspect of the sport is unfortunately not on the plate for you. Mm-hmm. But I'd say 90% of the population it is on the plate for, and it's something that, you know, you can, you know, I, almost everyone's like, oh, I don't want to do contact, I don't want to do contact, and they start training a bit, and they're like, ah, they I get, want to they test get, myself yeah, yeah. now. I learned all they these get things. Bug. How does it work? They get the bug a little bit, you know? Uh-huh. Right now, I've got a gentleman, uh, Ted. He's 67 years old. He's been training for nine months. He wants to have a fight. Uh, he said he sprinted for the first time in 18 years a couple weeks ago. Whoa. Um, he's lost weight. He's gotten great shape. He's sparring with guys who are in their 20s. Uh, you know, everybody. 67. 67 years old. Wow. And he feels like he's Shout changing out Ted. his life. Uh, yeah, I know. He's an amazing guy, but. You know, he feels like he's changing his life at this point. You know, I've seen kids that are seven come into our gym and start to change their life. I've seen people who are 67 change their life. I've seen people in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, all these different ages. And this is, to me, what the core of amateur boxing actually is. It's not about, you know, me getting a rep. It's not about making money for a gym. We're a nonprofit gym and a community organization. Um, it's really, to me, about having an, giving an op- people an opportunity to face their fear, to go through these trials, and come out stronger than they were when they walked in the gym. Right. And tell us about, um, so Eastside Boxing Club, um, you're, you've been a partner of... I was one of the, I helped found it, I'm on the board of directors for right. it. Um, it really started out with uh, Dave Shook. He's been a uh, boxing coach in Vancouver his whole life. He's a third-generation boxer. Uh, he grew up up north in BC, um, and his dad was a boxer. His grandfather was a boxer. His brother was a boxer. And Dave coached his brother. I think it was 65-plus fights, something like that. Wow. Um, and when he, Dave was only 19. Dave boxed as well, too, but he, I think, took to the coaching at a very young age. Wow. And he enjoyed doing that. Mm-hmm. So um, he coached his brother. He then, uh, when the Astoria was uh, closing down or moving, uh, action boxing was still there, but Dave sort of carried the name on a little bit. And then the uh, George Angel Mattis, who ran the Astoria, his family, uh, they didn't want Dave using the Astoria name and to keep it there. So we started Eastside Boxing. 
Um, I was already boxing. The when when was that? It was about nine years ago, I think. Okay. Um, and I'd started boxing with Dave. Uh, I just showed up. Uh, it was actually Nick Rossi, who's my old business partner at uh, Poorhouse uh, down in Gastown. Mm-hmm. Um, he had known Dave from before and introduced us, and I just started training him as a boxer. Uh, pretty quickly, Dave recognized that I'd already had my uh, coaching certification um, and that technically I was a decent boxer and that I could help out with the kids. So I started coaching. I'd already had my certification. I helped start a boxing club at UBC in my 20s uh, in the student union venue. We ran it for a couple of years. Um, While you were going to school there? I didn't go to school at UBC. Oh, okay. no, but you, just, but uh, you started a boxing program I there. did, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, the student union building there. So we cool. actually had a ton of lawyers, which is interesting. It was like the physical emancipation of the combative nature <laughs> of things. But, um, but, uh, uh, relieve a lot of stress from a stressful program, I yeah, guess. I don't know. Yeah. That was my first coaching thing. And cool. I didn't know a lot, but I knew I'd had some decent coaches already. I think I had some good technique. And so I was able to teach some people there. Uh, with Dave, who I really refined my coaching. Um, I think it was been training for maybe i don't even think it was a year uh we'd had a location on main street uh just near where uh the cobalt is in that area okay across from the american it was upstairs there yep and we showed up there one day and the landlord who was lending the space to us had locked the doors no no notice no telling us anything we had 14 kids standing outside a couple of young guys burst into tears Dave was just like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> oh, wow. And, you know, he was pretty upset and felt like, okay, well, maybe that's it. And, well, we have to find a relocation or what are we going to do? And Nick Ross, he had the idea. He'd seen white-collar fights in London where they basically take businessmen, they train them to fight each other, and it's like a uh, fundraiser to, oh, yeah. uh, to raise money. And so Dave was like, why don't we do a white-collar fights but for the hospitality industry? As we're, me and uh, Nick were in the hospitality industry. And I think Dave said, you'll be lucky if you get 15 people show up. 65 people showed up in the first year. Wow. We found a space above. Uh, and did you know it was <laughs> yeah. aprons for gloves at this point, or had you dubbed it yet? Uh, no. Okay. No. I think it was. We called it the <coughs> Restaurant Rumble, which is actually the oh. name of the event still. Right. Um. But yeah, I can't remember. I think Nick might have come up with that. It was like instead of white collar fights, we'd trade in, <laughs> trading in your aprons, whether you were a bartender, a server, whatever, a chef, whatever it may be, and trading them for a pair of boxing gloves or something like that. Right. So I think Nick came up with that, but it was uh, a good name and it stuck. That's <laughs> incredible that so many yeah. people showed up. And what, mm-hmm. what, uh, what do you think you attribute that to? Just like word of mouth, or did and you? The pl- first year it was really word of mouth, and because boxing's cool. <laughs> yeah. And like the first year, and this had, was the first opportunity that like just some nobody could show up, like or like a no. Yeah. A nobody and, and nobody up. and that was it we were like if you have no experience show up right we're looking for people with no experience you have three months and we're going to teach you how to box we're going to get you in shape to box and that first year i mean i can't remember if chop was first year or second year the guy ended up losing 80 pounds and has kept it off to this day chopper oh, yeah. i know chopper go look old, go ask him to see some old pictures and you'll be absolutely you'll be like amazed. who is this guy yeah amazed wow and i mean on average we've had people lose you know 15 to 25 pounds regularly yeah and you know in the hospitality industry it was a i think part of its success is because the hospital industry is often based around alcohol drugs and all of the other things that go along with it right it's a very hard lifestyle for people and people have time off they want to have a little bit of an outlet or something like that so i think that a lot of industry events were based around that side of stuff and this was an industry event that was actually way outside that is now but focused on fitness mental health and other uh, issues that uh, actually surround the industry so i feel like the first year we got people that were did not know what they were getting themselves into um, it was amazing the people that stuck with it and, and what they were able to uh, 
you know, achieve really. And and that first year we did the main event at the Woodbridge building. I think 500 people, 600 people showed up to it. Wow. We couldn't have written a better script. The title fight was a knockout. It was a great fight between uh, a couple of great guys with Simon Callback and Chris Zaka. And then all of the other fights even leading up to it. There's just these amazing wars between like uh, <laughs> Chen Wei and um, uh, what was his name? Chris and uh cho and there's just so many great names so many great people that went through it and just you know men women fantastic fights across the board and just really impressed with everybody that showed up and joined it we, we just didn't even know it was going to be a success and it just got bigger and bigger every year how much what's the percentage of people that are totally rookies haven't touched a glove or bag and then the first year, I would say 95%. We had wow. uh, one guy, Mark Louie, who was like a uh, North American Taekwondo champ. We had some other people that had like other backgrounds, but they ended up getting matched up with people that had experience. I right. Fight with Mark. Right. <laughs> wow. The first year. But yeah. But yeah, where there's some people that were, you know, definitely more athletic. Others that, you know, I was like, you're not going to make it through a week of this. You know, to be honest, even like, you know, guys like Simon Callback at the beginning, I'm like, oh, he's not that motivated. He's partying too much and whatever for the last month callback like trained harder than almost anybody else did and he was fantastic in his fight i think because of the effort that he put in mm -hmm. you know so it's it's been really interesting to see what you think are athletes you know not do that great there's tons of talent there but they don't have the motivation or the will and some people that are really not very athletic and or weren't talented at all push through really gain a lot out of the this whole program and walk away very different people and really i think improve their lives in a huge way are you normally surprised by if you if you're judging a book by its cover mm -hmm. and you you see them and then you're like mm, uh i have these assumptions about you and mm -hmm. like how often are you surprised by that person a lot yeah yeah and also i mean boxing if it's taught me one thing as a coach too it's that you can never judge a book by its cover i've seen people that don't look particularly physically gifted that are some of the best athletes that i've coached right i've seen other people that like look like you know <laughs> cover model for sports illustrated they're incapable of almost anything the coordination's not there whatever they've done isolation weights to look good their whole life but they don't really have the physical capabilities and or the mental toughness to really deal with the sport too and what do you think if, if you had to break it down to one quality mm. that like separates not necessarily like the most successful winning boxer yeah. but just like successful in in the means of athleticism and and personal success mm. what's the one factor what's the one difference in that in that person versus anyone else is can you boil it down to one heart yeah yeah you know no matter who they are they can think they're smart they can think they're not that smart you know they can have a lot of confidence issues or whatever else but they when they find their heart it's like people are able to accomplish way more and there's people that are like not only not physically gifted but they're physically like not talented for the sport at all yet i've seen them push through and have bigger hearts than like some of the uh, more than any of the other people that ever coached sometimes yeah and be able to really uh get a lot out of the sport because of that now it's something that's intangible you know and that's what's kind of amazing about the sport you can put two people that basically look like physically perfectly matched they're both fast strong whatever else one person seems to show up why that's a good question if you right. can answer that right it's a million dollar so question, we yeah so. That's incredible. Because yeah, it yeah. can get, get quite emotional, too. Very much so. Because I've seen people in the gym cry, straight up cry. Oh, yeah. Like ball. Yeah. I've seen people do it all the time. You know, I've had, there's a person the other day that they're a frontline worker. Uh, th they came to me after sparring. They were, the tears in their eyes, and they were like, I can't do this right now. They have a fight coming up, and they're like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm like, that makes sense. 
I know what you deal with every day. They start putting the head of the ward as a nurse and they were like watching people die all day and stressed out and trying to manage the staff. And it's like, you know, all of these outside things. This is actually, we do um, free training for frontline workers because we are trying to be under, we're in there in our community. We're in the downtown east side and we're trying to be understanding of the stresses they go through and give them an outlet. You know, and I think that overall, the fabric of our community is helped by having more people within it that have done the training, gone through, and are then have more confidence in themselves and believe in other people as well, instead of just being kind of in their own little world all the time. And there's a lot of value for people. It's amazing how outside um, I've seen it, you know, just do wonders. And, you know, this person went through and I said, look, I know you got to fight, but there's too much stress. Don't fight. Like, and just, this is supposed and, to be... And why, why would you tell them that? It, so they avoid being hurt or avoid hurting uh, someone else? I, or? I just think for, you know, if you're not mentally prepared, going into a fight can be very, very difficult. I've done it before, too, where I haven't really been up to it, but I've tried to fight. And other times where I've been like, look, I don't think I can fight this time. And I'm, I got to pull out. I'm not feeling great. Or I didn't feel like my training went well enough or whatever it may be. There can be a lot of mental anguish and, and difficulty leading up to it. Another thing, too, is, you know, people put a huge time commitment into this. Right. And if they're busy in their other lives, it can be really difficult to make the time and or feel like you're training hard enough. You know, it's like if I can only make it one day this week because of all these other pressures in my life and the other person is making it and you see them there, you know, whenever else, it can uh, it can do a lot to your head. And, and you know, as you're going into the, uh, a situation like this, especially if it's your, like, first or second fight, there's a lot of mental stress. You know, it becomes way bigger than three one-minute rounds or yeah. three two-minute rounds. Which it, is a lifetime. Which can be an eternity when you're in the ring. <laughs> yeah. Depending on whether or not things are going your way or not, it can be an absolute eternity. But, yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. How long has Aprons for Gloves Restaurant Rumble how long has it had? It's it's it been? Would you call it a charity event? Is that or is yeah. that? Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. So um, it's since it started. Yeah, it's uh, the the concept of it really was we need to raise money to keep a gym within this community. Uh, Dave went to the Astoria when he was younger. His brother did. His dad took him there when he was a kid. I used to go there for uh, sparring and training when I was younger as well. I started at Main Street Boston, which is now gone up on Main and uh, Broadway, um, and it provided. The Astoria has provided a place for uh, at-risk youth for years without it being almost known, right? So what ended up happening a lot of the time at the Astoria is a lot of these kids, the coaches there, they were there to be boxers. They weren't there for anything else. And so, like, I remember my first day there, I went in and I did four rounds with a kid, gave me a bloody nose, had way more experience than me. Mm -hmm. they, they whooped my ass intentionally. Uh, so Is it, was that just just like a test? Yeah, they see want if, to see if you want to come back. Okay, you know what I mean. And so, you know, what do you think you, about that not, as a coach now? I that is not something I stand beside these days. It's you know very different. You know, our kids program we have had over seven hundred kids go through it. We provide food and a safe place for them to train. We work with a bunch of different social workers at Britannia as well as in the downtown east side. Um, there is a couple of kids that have come out of that program that asked to fight amateurs. None of them are pressured to fight. Wow. So I think that the benefits that they've got from the sport, they can get without being pushed into it. And I don't really believe in pushing anybody into anything. So, you know, if a kid has shown me a great work ethic in the gym and said, look, I really want to have an amateur fight, I'll coach you through it for sure. Because you demonstrated desire for it. Mm -hmm. If there is no desire there, if you're like, I'm just doing this for fun and I don't want to go hang with my friends after school, you know, whatever the other issues are. Um, we're both perfectly happy to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think the mentality around the sport has really changed. 
the reason for our gym is really what I think is helping the fabric of our community. You know, we've had, there's kids that have gone through the program, some of them seven years ago, that I'm still friends with, and yeah. they're in their 20s now, and they've got a job, and they're taking care of, you know, a kid they had when they were young. Uh, they're not in a gang. They're not dead. They're not in prison. Those are all bonuses, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of them and now have actually come back to me even and said, you know, I recognize what this gym did for me. And that is obviously the ultimate reward. That gets like, you in the feels yeah, when you, you know, hear that. Yeah, you know, if Dave said we've helped, if we've helped one kid, we've been successful and we've now helped a lot more than one kid. Mm-hmm. And that to me is great. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, everybody that walks in the gym gets saved. It's reality. Mm-hmm. The reality of it is, is maybe we catch a few and it's like a net, you know, a lot of people are slipping through. There's kids, I remember one kid in specific, he just came into the gym the other day. He's living on the street. Uh, he's, you know, not, I don't think, ever going to be able to get out of it. He still comes to get a little bit of confidence and or, you know, we'll give him some food or some other stuff like that. I think he's 26 years old now. Um you know, I feel sad every time I see him mm-hmm. that we couldn't have done more. But you know, we can only—we're not social workers; we're boxing coaches. We can only do so much for these people. And I think what we can do is give them an opportunity and a chance that where they had no chance before. Right. Some of these people are from—you know—they don't have any family. They're in foster homes or whatever their life is like, uh, and they don't get told they're good at anything ever. They have no confidence. They are from the lowest caste of society, and they're treated like that. In the boxing gym, they're treated as equals, uh, fair. I have a guy who's just come into the gym now. I actually don't know his name because he can't speak. I believe he oh. lost his jaw. Uh, he was a drug addict. Um, and he's started to come and train regularly. Yeah. Now, can we save this person? I see a huge improvement in them already. Uh, do they want to be saved? I think so. It was their decision to come into the boxing gym at some point and try to change their life. He's very slender. He doesn't have a lot of musculature, but I've already seen him now be able to do a push-up where he couldn't before. Right. And, you know, these things are not easy to watch, but it's pretty inspiring to see someone in that state who is willing to learn, get disciplined, try to change their life even when they're that far gone. So, you know, as much as people um, are pretty harsh at the downtown east side and, you know, look at it, and I think it was Noam Chomsky who said, our anger with homeless people is our failure as a society being reflected back at us or something like that, you know? Right. And I really see that. You know, people are like, oh, get a job and blah, blah, blah. You know, they have all this sort of opinion about it. Those people are there for a lot of different reasons. And I think that if any of us had been through some of the things they've been through, we'd probably be in the same situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just got lucky. We're all really lucky. Right. Yeah. And so what are the core values – that you and Dave and who's who are your other? Um, we have a lot other? of different coaches there now. We've actually really expanded the coaching team lately. We've got Andy Mavros, who's a great amateur boxer. He's now the head of our uh, amateur team. Uh, we have Caleb Starnes, who's ex UFC fighter with I think thirty five fights, something like that in wow. the UFC. Uh, we have a ton of uh, other coaches. Jamie Lynn Ward, fifty amateur fights, a pro boxer. Uh, Dave's ex wife. <laughs> they still get along great. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have there's the list goes on and on. Dima Shemenko, the guy who I was saying who's a ballroom dancer, he's become a coach for us already. Very mature for a twenty year old. Uh, Sasan, he's been an amazing coach, great guy, great amateur boxer. So we, we've as we've grown, we've really expanded the team, and it's great to see people that have either had a boxing career be able to relive it, uh, you know, or revive their sort of love of the sport, their passion for the sport through coaching. 
and uh, and or have them around the gym because they're not experiencing these guys, man. So we're in a situation where we're, I think, attracting a lot of great people because the gym is a really open and great place. A lot of boxing gyms I walked into as a kid, it was like, you know, every person in the place stared at you when you walked in and you right. were pretty quickly getting More your like ass whooped in the ring. More like prison than... A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> prison you know, vibes. Like prison rules a bit. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that, you know, you walk up the stairs to Eastside, you're going to get greeted by someone at the desk and or one of the coaches. Uh, I've had, you know, there's a gentleman, Xavier, I think he's in his 50s. Uh, he came up the gym, up to the top of the stairs and he said, hello, uh, I would like to learn how to box, but I went to another boxing gym and they told me I was too old. And I said, oh, okay, uh, well, uh, do you want to learn to box? And he was like, yes, when can I start? I was like, right now, get your shit on. And he was like, okay. He's been coming to the gym for over a year since that day. Wow. Transport easy. That's incredible. You know, That's... it's like, you know, where I, I don't, I always say not everyone's going to be a boxer, but I can teach anyone to box. Right. And it has value, I think, to almost anybody too. And if they're there yeah. and they're walking in and asking, yeah. like, they're of course you're going to say motivated. yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. To me, to turn down anybody, you know, and we are a nonprofit gym, but we do, obviously, there's dues. All of the money that we raise from the dues and also the money we raise through Aprons for Gloves and through Beer Wars goes back to our kids program, goes back to the rent. Paying uh, a couple positions within the gym, uh, the front desk and uh, social work and the other things we're doing. Right yeah, because because so. I was I was doing I did AFG last year, an yeah. amazing amazing opportunity. <laughs> thank you, thank yeah. you. I wish you were in my corner. Actually, and you're definitely talented for boxing too. Oh, so. thank you, thank and you. Hard, so we're we're getting. The, I think I think next year I'm gonna vie for your corner or i guess you don't really have a choice every we time. don't this is like everybody says the same thing thank you i take those a huge compliment yeah but you know uh, we've got a lot of great coaches but it's um unfortunately half the people have to lose and yeah i'm only allowed to be in one corner the bet you know what so, that was yeah. the that was the best thing that could have yeah. happened to me like yeah. through that experience yeah. i love that i lost yeah and you know, because um, so yeah, I, it I has a value. Man. I trained my ass off yeah. for like I saw. I've never physically trained that hard for anything. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think right. Yeah. I was just yeah. committed. But also, there's the the money aspect too. Like mm. each of the contestants are are uh, at, required to raise money yeah. for this for the after school exactly program. So, yeah. So each person is required to raise two thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So and like last year, I think we had 185 people try out. Mm-hmm. So obviously, not all those people are raising money, but a lot of them that go through it and start to raise, we we they do great. But what's amazing to me is the boxing was a competition and now the fundraising has become a competition that's right had people like oh i made my two thousand dollars perfect i get a fight we've had rate people raise i think dan haynes raised fourteen thousand dollars one year (laughs) i've seen some of those records yeah Uh, we had a gal last year and she raised eight thousand dollars i was just like Oh my God! Like you know, that almost has become a competition. If you're not a boxer, really... you should be in the nonprofit yeah, sector. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> you know, these people are amazingly talented. That they've they've come along and really, you know, helped the gym out immensely by their fundraising efforts, as well as them putting themselves out there. And this is what I love about aprons for gloves: is people have their own reason for doing it. They want to do it because they want to learn to box. They want to look cool in front of their friends. They want to get in shape. They want to quit smoking. They want to quit stop drinking as much. Whatever their goal is. That's why they show up. Or their friend talked them into it. Hey, this is the thing. Okay, I'll try boxing, whatever. Yeah. So they show up. Then they end up going through the training. They end up facing their fears. They end up learning about themselves. They end up getting in shape and accomplishing those goals they set out to. And then all of a sudden, they turn around at the end of it, and they've helped out 
hundreds of kids in their community, the fabric of their community. It's like this win, 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 win. Like, how do you stop winning? Yeah, in themselves. They improve their own like personality. And I'm sure their relationships change. Now who they've helped in turn. Yeah, that to me is sort of like I don't know of a event or of a job or something that could be as rewarding as that. Yeah. My involvement with the gym, I volunteered for years. We get paid a small amount for some of the classes we teach now. Uh, but I would be at the gym whether I was getting paid or not. I always have been at the gym whether I'm getting paid or not. Mm-hmm. The, it's just nice that I get a little bit of cash on the side now. And yeah. also, uh, living in Vancouver on this side hustle. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's like, you know, I would be there anyways. I love the gym. Uh, it means as much to me. You know, people are like, oh, you, you volunteered so much of your time and put all this effort into it. It's like, yeah, but, you know, I got a lot out of it, too. You know, these kids who come to me and say, hey, you helped me with my life, or these adults who say, you know, I, I've been trying to lose weight for 10 years, I've tried every diet, I couldn't do anything, and all of a sudden you guys have been able to help me with this. Those are the successes. Mm-hmm. And that for me is like, you know, it's amazing when someone's like, oh, that thing you showed me lifting the ring the other day, or, you know, whatever else. It's very confidence. And it uh, keeps you coming back. It keeps me coming back constantly. I still have a lot to learn. Right. About people, about coaching, and about even boxing technique, everything. I've been boxing for a long time, but there's, you know, there's coaches that are at the gym even now. I learned something the other day. Mm-hmm. Great little move I used on <laughs> somebody inspiring. Perfect. You know, but I think that's the fun about boxing is it's a journey. There is no destination. It's a lifelong journey of trying to uh, become better, get closer to perfection, and uh, learn as much as you can about the sport. And I love that it's, you know, you can go lift weights and blah, blah, blah. There's lots of other ways to get exercise. But uh, the thing I love about boxing is I can go to the gym for literally two hours and be like, whoa, that was two hours? Because I'm so focused on learning a technique or teaching something Mm -hmm. or into the drill I'm doing or whatever it may be. And I think other people really feed off that too. Instead of having to spend you know, hours in the uh, gym doing isolation reps and stuff like that, it gets boring. I actually haven't lived <laughs> yes. away since I was like 22 years old. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. pretty into the boxing. <laughs> and tell us, yeah. tell us about, because this is one amazing stat, and I want you to share it. Yeah. How much money to this day? So Apron Spur Gloves has been running for this nine year, years? This will be the ninth year. Right. Uh, so we'll have tryouts coming up in May uh, for that. Uh, we're just running the third Beer Wars right now. Right. Uh, we just started training with that. A bunch of fresh faces and people that are pretty excited about it. Um, so yeah, it'll, we're this will be year nine coming up. We've raised I think over one point two million dollars in the time that we've done it. Wow! I don't even believe the number. <laughs> when I heard it, I was like, "Huh? That's um, a real number that we can raise?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow! Exactly. You start to break it down, though. You look at the cost. The event itself is a very expensive event. I'm sure. Uh, we've said that people have said it's the best production value they've seen in a boxing show in Western Canada. Yeah, you said there's there's some pro boxers, some ex pro boxers that come in and yeah. like fly in to watch this event because yeah. of the production value. Yeah, so we brought in John Iceman Scully last right. year. Mm-hmm. We've had other uh, pros come in as well. There's other local guys like you know Dale Walters, uh, Derek Hoyt from Ireland, who's on Team Canada, 175 fights. A lot of guys who have been around the sport their whole life, and they've been amazingly impressed with what we're able to do. The other thing is, is this is a formula that we've developed, and you know Dave has this concept of being able to teach other coaches um, around the world in their own city because mm-hmm. we don't understand the rough neighborhoods in you know Detroit or mm-hmm. you know these other cities. But it doesn't mean you can't apply this formula 
and then actually uh, hopefully do what we've tried to accomplish in Vancouver, which is, you know, strengthening the fabric of these communities and giving people that really need something a place to go and a place to be. Mm-hmm. And what are, what are the big goals and dreams for Aprons for Clubs? Obviously, you want to ho- keep hosting the the event and see these transformations happen just among the community. But yeah. do you have some some big, big dreams and goals for for I, the for this formula that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, for the big dream, I think, is to actually keep on uh, fundraising and be able to use that money to buy a location in Vancouver mm-hmm. so that this thing is a legacy that's bigger than me, bigger than Dave, bigger than everybody that's ever been involved Something with it. Something permanent. Something permanent. Uh, we think that, you know, it, a lot of the time in a lot of the programs on the downtown east side, they're trying to do something after there's a problem. You right. Know, the, these people are well into drug use and or, you know, the abuses in their lives have showed up in ways that are you know really difficult for them. It's reactionary uh, instead of something that's actually like, you know, preempting uh, people being in that situation. And, you know, like I was talking about some of these kids who you know have jobs in construction and the restaurant industry that we found them. Um, I think that those people would have been on the streets. So if you think of the number of people that it's not a lot. But if, like, every year there's 20 less people on the streets, and we do that over 10 years, 200 people. That that's saying something. And if we have a homeless issue that's got around 4,000 or so people that are on the streets, 200 less is a pretty big deal, you know. And I think that, you know, a sustained effort with this is really – the goal is really continue to build and help the fabric of our community, try to build something, I think, that could be potentially a legacy for uh, downtown Eastside and something for Vancouver that can – go on for really ever and you know as long as there's problems which i don't see going away ever 100 percent, there needs to be some sort of solutions or people trying to uh do something about it i love that so a permanent building Mm -hmm. where people can come and train but it's it's probably more it's more definitely more than boxing it's like you said it's bigger than you it's bigger than boxing yeah it really is you know and i think that almost like a community center but like something that boxing has been a tool to reach these people Mm -hmm. and hopefully to help them you know, I'm sure you've heard of a guy, I think his name was Muhammad Ali. Oh, I heard of him. Relatively famous in the boxing community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he used the sport as a platform. Mm-hmm. He became the so greatest fighter of his era. Giant soapbox for him. <laughs> people know him. Everybody knows him. Mm-hmm. Not because of his boxing, because of who he was as a person. Right. And he was, you know, an amazing person that went outside of, oops, outside of the sport to uh, really, I think, discuss political and people that things that are most athletes are either afraid to today or things like what happened to Colin Kaepernick happened to them instead of having any support they become demonized by the media and so on and so forth and you know you get polarized real quick really quick Mm -hmm. and you know Ali said a lot of things and you know uh, joined the Muslim community and a lot of other uh, things that a lot of America didn't like yet he's still and passed away as one of the most beloved sports figures and figures in the world, mm-hmm. let alone sport. Yeah, so revered. I think, you know, to use the sport as a platform to help people has value. It's been done before, and I think we can continue on a tradition in some ways with that. I love that so much. And I, I want to say that I really appreciate you what you and, and the board are, are doing with the program. I loved, uh, for the listeners, I would 100% recommend Aprons for Gloves. Mm-hmm. Trying out, um, being in the training, go for a fight. If like you know, like I it'll love cha- it so it'll much. Change your life. It changed. It changed my life yeah. for sure. I'm doing it 100% doing it again this year. Great. I'm gonna try out anyways. Yeah. <laughs> um, Aaron, 
I'm yeah. coming for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, hey, Aaron, your opponent is—he's uh, one of the more talented boxers that we've seen. Hundred percent. And you are very good, a very good athlete as well. But a he, lefty. Yeah, Aaron, he's a lefty. He's got some natural ability to make punches miss. And you know, we have—I've seen certain people that have gone through this, and I'm like, whoa, I did not expect that person to be that talented at this sport. Right. And you know, Aaron was one of those guys. So you're in a tough fight. You fought very well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And it'll be I, a good rematch. I want to see that. I man, I tell you like it when we got there i'm sure you've had experiences like this but when you get there it's like did i train for the last three months yeah. it's like i can't breathe like i can't oh, move my ring. legs oh, yeah. yeah when it comes to the People real time say even in sparring too they're like my cardio sucks my cardio sucks so i was like no you have a lot of anxiety that's right. what sucks and how you yeah. deal with that anxiety to be honest with you learning to box in front of an audience or competing is really about how learning to deal with your own fear and anxiety because that's a diff whole different level from whole training level. to sparring to public show. fighting yeah, yeah yeah exactly and just the the electricity in the room yeah. you know we're at the commodore with 900 to a thousand people yeah in there. yeah they're all very excited and just the feeling like when you're standing in the behind the curtains warming up there you know what's waiting for you out there now i always found it funny when my first few fights definitely like hyper nervous and it actually took me a while to get over the nerves even at all you know mm -hmm. even like seven six seven fights something like that until you start to kind of get a bit more comfortable and you know, those nerves, they never really go away completely. But what you learn how to do is learn how to control it a bit. And I found the biggest thing for me was breathing. Of course, so yeah. Your ability to sort of breathe in this fear and anxiety and then breathe it out again and prepare yourself mentally for what you're going to do. And when I was younger, I was like, well, I was really good in sparring. And the coach was like, hey, this guy's great. You know, get, get him a fight, get him a fight. And I get in a fight and it like frees up. Right. And I was so pissed off with myself afterwards. And my coach was like, you just gotta learn you just gotta, gotta just relax your there. shoulders yeah yeah it's so hard to do yeah it's so easy to say but so hard to do but i found for me the biggest things as i got more experience was really focusing on my breathing almost as looking out the window and just relaxing you know before right. a fight just finding your method yeah finding a calm thing wind in the trees whatever it may be and just kind of going to that rather than worrying about what i'm going to do in the fight when i'm going to fight and people put a lot of pressure on themselves i have to win i have to win I don't know, half of the people at Apron for Gloves lose every year. I yeah. literally <laughs> do not care whether you win or lose. And like you said, a loss can be more important than a win. You know, mm -hmm. I've seen people win three times in a row and learn nothing. I've seen people learn once and become twice the fighter afterwards because they actually then recognize where their deficiencies were or why maybe they made a mistake or maybe it wasn't their deficiencies. Maybe they were just too nervous before the fight. And they learn how to deal with that better and then they're able to show up and fight. And before we, I want to transition a little bit, but before we transition, um, I want to ask you about, because you, you talk a lot about, um, you know, kind of calming your anxiety or like mm -hmm. figuring out how to breathe. Mm -hmm. um, how would you prioritize? How do you feel about, how do you respect the, the mental side of it? Like over, like the mental control over the body and mental health. What's, what's your take on that? almost everything if you're not mentally prepared you're not physically prepared like i say with any sport whether it's 80 percent mental i think it's more than that mm -hmm. you know what i mean um i think that you know you can have all the tools in the toolbox and be physically ready and prepared but if your brain and your head isn't in the game you're gonna have a very difficult time mm -hmm. you know and uh, so how do you get better at that well first of all you start to box so by doing the training the harder you work the more confidence you develop the confidence you develop is going to translate into that the other thing we do is we build mental toughness right you know all of the like you know you, so, so obviously yeah. that, that part of that comes from yeah. like failing mm -hmm. right like going and doing and failing but how much do would you attribute that to um the coaches 
um, creating a safe environment that is encouraging and helpful. And the safe environment is huge, but it's also we have to create a not so safe environment sometimes too. You know what I mean? What do you mean by that? <laughs> oh, I'm sure if you've seen Coach Dave yell at somebody here or there, or you know this thing. What I'm saying about mental toughness is basically to me the way I see it is plateaus. We all are capable of achieving more mental toughness. The only way you ever achieve it is by pushing yourself beyond your threshold. Mm. Now, many people in the majority of their life, almost some people never do that. And so by boxing forcing you to do that and the coach is forcing you to go beyond what you think is your mental and physical threshold, you gain mental toughness. Right. The more men mental toughness you gain, the easier it is then to survive in the world. So you're just breaking through ceilings just constantly. Over and over and over. And I'm still doing it. And I've been mm -hmm. boxing for years. There's times when, you know, I've taken some time off. I'm busy with my business and I don't get to train as much. I come back to fighters training. I have to push myself through some of it. Mm -hmm. I'm still working on my mental toughness. We all are. You know, um, I remember being a sparring partner for a guy called Dave Petrick, who was one of the pros from our gym. We didn't have very many sparring partners at the time. It was between the gyms. I had to spar him three days a week, Ooh. six rounds a day, uh, and for three months. <laughs> yes. And if anybody's ever been in the ring with Dave or you know the guy, uh, he's capable of breaking ribs. He's a very strong guy. He used to fight at 147. He walks around at 185. Whoa. Uh, he was only about 5'6", but he's like little Mike Tyson. <laughs> so Dave would be like, our head coach, uh, Shuck, would be like, Brian, show up. We need you for the sparring. I was like, okay, again. I go, <laughs> and I you're like, up, my ribs are still not together. Six rounds. Wow. And yeah, he dropped me with body shots. Dave, get, get up. Let's keep on going here. I made it through the three months. Now, after I went through that three months with Dave Patrick, I was eight times the boxer I was before. Right. Because my mental toughness, my physical toughness had gone through the roof. I was capable then of dealing. He's a pressure fighter. He basically never stops throwing punches. And so I was capable of then dealing with his pressure. Everybody else in the gym felt like they weren't even applying pressure to me anymore. Right. They felt numb. And so this is it. You know, if you don't challenge yourself and push yourself to be in situations that are highly uncomfortable, you're never going to get tougher. How do you expect to? And the biggest problem I find with like, you know, personal trainers and fitness programs, you pay a lot of money for all these things and they mm -hmm. don't want to lose you as a client. So they don't push you hard enough. If you don't want to do aprons for gloves, there's the stairs. Right. You're not, you, you're you not concerned about that. You can leave anytime you like. We've got a lot of people that want to do this and they're mm -hmm. willing to push through it. So if you're not here to try to get tougher, to try to learn the sport, to try to find out about yourself, keep walking on the stairs anytime. Great. Go for it. Don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Next. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's like, you know, the people that do though and are willing to do that, mental toughness translates to the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, what's a job interview with one person compared to fighting in front of a thousand people at the Commodore? <laughs> what's the worst they're going to say? Sorry, <laughs> we don't have a position for you right now. Not, boom, you got dropped on your ass in yeah. front of 900 people. Yeah. Right? So it's everything becomes a lot easier going it? through these things. <laughs> it puts a perspective on your life. Mm -hmm. You know, the things that people complain about, Oh, this is hard. Is it, is it that hard? Are the things you have to deal with that hard? Maybe there's a lot harder things out there that if you challenge yourself with those things become easy. Right? You, you know what? I love that because I have to tell myself that all the mm -hmm. time. It's like, but I'm still moving. I can still like, if I don't know if we're punching a bag or if we're doing pushups, yeah. like, I still, I tell myself, I, I still can, I still can. Mm -hmm. And then it, it literally just like gives me a momentum. So just understanding, is this all that hard that I have to quit? Yes, it's hard. Mm. Yes, it's hard. Right from the get, right from the, when the bell rings. Yes, it's difficult. Yeah. But, but the things is that were so hard, hard when you started out are like your warm up three months later. 100%. You built so much physical and mental toughness, a different game. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen the movie Gattaca? No. 
Okay, so it's uh, I think Jude Law and Ethan Hawke or something. Like okay, that. and uh, they're one of them is it's in the future and they're genetically um, predisposed to be smart, good looking, a good athlete. But Ethan Hawke's character is a natural born. He has was born before any of these genetics or tweakings oh. happened, and he competes against his brother in everything. Mm-hmm. And he he this anyway the plot of the film is he wants to go to space but who cares but there's a scene in the film where they're both swimming out into the ocean and he beats his brother every single time and they get back to shore and his brother says how come I'm genetically stronger everything else but you can beat me because he and his answer is I never think about swimming back to the shore I only think about beating you right that's hard that's mental toughness you can put as much great stuff as you think into one person, but if they don't have the heart, they're not going to be capable of somebody else who's developed mental toughness, who has a heart, and who's got character in them. That's a huge differentiating factor. It's everything. It yeah. is everything. It, that's yeah. It really is. You know? Wow. Yeah. In so, life too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want. I want to take this this time to, to transition a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, We've been talking for almost an hour now. We're just about boxing. Oh, really? That's and that's great. Yeah. I know. You get me started like, on boxing. Oh. We haven't even touched boxing history yet. <laughs> I've been talking for an hour. That might have to be yet. a whole other episode. Yeah, but, I think so. <laughs> um, but let me ask you about um, your business because um, mm-hmm. I know that, uh, like you said, you you kind of started out in the in the, in the service industry, mm-hmm. um, bartending extraordinaire. I'm sure by now. Thank you. But uh, <laughs> but not only that, you own your own distillery now. Yeah, so I started in the hospitality industry as a dishwasher when I was 13 years old. Right. Uh, I worked in various restaurants around Vancouver. Uh, I ended up getting a job as a dishwasher on the west side at Jericho Tennis Club. And uh, I basically worked as a dishwasher, a prep cook. I did almost every job in the kitchen except for being a chef. And then I saw the bar, and something attracted me to it. And I was, I think, 18 years old. One of those place. <laughs> uh, and they started letting me bartend there a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I ended up becoming a bartender like right when I was 19. Um, and then I'd become the bar manager there when I was 21 years old. Okay. And I, I, there was this old copy of, I can't remember what the stupid book is called anymore. It's like the worst cocktail guide. It's like in every bar, you've got some crappy copy of it lying around. Nice. Mr. Boston, that's it. Okay. Um, it's like, it's it's you know old book. It's just kind of been laying around, you know, sort of thing. But I picked it up. And inside there, I started to read a little bit about the cocktails. And they had some history and some other stuff. And I was like, there's a lot more to this than I realized than to just, you know, making pictures of margaritas for the beach people. At yeah, yeah, yeah. And so by the time I was like, uh, I think 24, I'd left Jericho. But at that time, I'd already started to, like, study cocktails a little bit more. And I got quite interested in them. Um, I went away to England, worked in a different industry there. And when I came back from London, uh, I was 26. And I got a job in the nightclubs here. I bartended for about five years on Granville Strip. Uh, which was now venue was Plaza back in the day. Um, and then I quit that because you can only survive so much of the nightclubs at a certain right. point. Yeah. Um, and I got a job at a little cocktail bar on Broadway called Bogarts. Uh, there, I had decided at that point that I was going to kind of devote myself more to it. I started reading a ton and everything else, and I got a job as the bar manager there. Actually, I remember walking in, and the old bar manager said, here's the keys and stuff. I'm done. <laughs> and left. What? <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> That's the, place was easy di- promotion. the place was dirty. Um, <laughs> they did not care that much. Uh, well, not the, 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 the place, but the fridges and everything needed a redo. It needed a manager. It needed somebody to kind of take over. And so I took it over there, and I'd been making some fun cocktails. It was still 
kind of the end of the uh, martini bastardization period where uh, everything in the cocktail glass was a martini. But we're starting to do some pretty creative stuff. Like I bought sake from Granville Island. I did with like you know uh, gin and a cucumber flow with pickled ginger and black sesame. Like stuff that's kind of starting to get a bit more progressive already. Mm-hmm. And then we'd also seen like um, some bartenders come from other places. There was I think Nick and Nigel who opened. Um, What's that? What was that called? A uh, George Ultra Lounge downtown, and they'd come from London and brought like a lot of like fresh fruit ideas, but still tied in with classic cocktails. And then the bartending community as a whole in Vancouver started to really change. And at that time, I think I was about thirty or so, and I had just uh, finished at Bogarts. Oh, so I was working at Bogarts, and I got um, there was a Giffard competition locally. Okay. So like a local uh, French liqueur company, and it was like a bigger bartending competition at the time. And I'd never been invited to anything. I was just bartending there. And the rep for it had come in and said, oh, my God, you're using two of our products. And I'd done a caramel apple martini with the Manzana Verde and some other product. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, another cocktail. Oh, it was chocolate uh, liqueur or something we did. And um, he was like, do you want to come to this competition and, like, for drinks? I was like, oh, sure, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really think about it. And I guess a few weeks later, we were getting ready for the competition. I had a funny dream. And I woke up laughing to myself. And I came up with a drink called uh old dog new tricks a play on the salty dog and it was like a title it was like i love too long for a drink yeah salty dog if you don't bartend you don't know it's a vodka grapefruit juice with salt on the rim really simple cocktail okay yeah but i kind of fancied it up the secret ingredient for the competition was a pink grapefruit liqueur from jaffard okay so i did pink grapefruit champagne sorbet uh with like a float of their merwa which is like a black raspberry liqueur pink hawaiian sea salt on the rim candied grapefruit peel like oh you know i kind of went i'm like my mouth is watering right now. <laughs> oh, damn. This is the old one, dude. Yeah. And I ended up winning that competition. Wow. So I got to go to France and compete there. And all of a sudden, I was like, okay, this whole world of cocktails is now opened up to me. It right. It really changed me that trip. Uh, I really got to get in touch with a lot of other bartenders around the world and people that were really you know, inspirational to me, too. And from there, uh, I actually got headhunted by the Four Seasons. I opened up new restaurants, which actually just closed down this week. Oh, well uh after a long stint actually the whole four seasons closed down um but uh and then i went to the Loden hotel and then i ended up getting involved in poor house restaurant in gastown as a part owner as well as a bartender and bar manager mm-hmm. um and at that when i started working at poor house i had uh started making bitters to make bitters you need a high proof neutral place spirit there's not one for sale in british columbia okay. so i being who I am, for some reason, decided I was going to start distilling in my second bedroom. <laughs> right. As, <laughs> as you do. the police. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I had a little bit of success there. I didn't know a lot. It was just super simple distilling, making sugar, water, and turbo yeast mash. And just, you know, 14 hours of distilling got me like a bottle and a half of 90, 87 ABV sort of fruit stuff. But it was enough to actually make bitters with because bitters right. is such small proportions. Um from there, I got invited to a event at Holman Lang Winery up in the Okanagan, and I met a guy by the name of Laurent Lafuente, who's a French master distiller. He works as a consultant in BC for different uh, distillers and wineries, and he was working at Holman Lang at the time. And he gave me apple, pear, peach, raspberry, no, 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 peach, apple, pear, raspberry, uh, a few different like eau de vies that he'd made from Okanagan fruit, mm-hmm. and I tasted them. He had a room filled with them, and I was just like, these are amazing. They blew yeah. my mind. And you're like, it, how can I? It was like literally like a pear captured in time, mm. you know, and in, wow. in this spirit. It was so good. Yeah. And so I actually got to make cocktails with all this stuff for this event. 
And after the event, Laurent was like, wow, your cocktails were amazing. I didn't know my spirits could do that. And I was like, those spirits can do anything. They're fucking great. Wow. <laughs> and um, so I ended up uh, then asking him if I could come up and he could teach me more about distilling. So I went up there for a couple weeks. Uh, and before I knew it, I had like my little still on a barbecue. Don't do this. <laughs> uh, out back of his winery in the middle of his beautiful uh, uh, field of you know, vineyard. And I uh, learned my basics. I distilled uh, some of his uh, white wine that they weren't using into brandy. Um, and he taught me a little bit about uh, distilling eau de vies and other stuff. He still works with me as a consultant. Wow. And uh, he kind of inspired me, to be honest, to get into this whole thing. Uh, from there, I went and did a little bit more training in uh, Spokane. There's dry fly distilling down there. They're the oldest distillery in Washington State since Prohibition. Um, they make some really great products and I kind of got an idea of how a craft or a microdistillery work and also how the business worked. They were great in sharing with me their, you know, uh, financials and all this other stuff so I could actually get an idea of how to run it. And so that was 12 years ago. Wow. And I then decided I was going to open my own distillery at some point. When, when, so when did you open? So, so this is yeah. Resurrection Spirits for anyone yeah. that doesn't know. Yeah. So we're Resurrection Spirits. We're a craft distillery in East Vancouver, uh, just right near Storm Brewing at Franklin Commercial at 1672 Franklin. Um, this space is about 4,000 square feet overall. We have a 1,000 square foot production area, barrel aging whiskey upstairs, and then a 1,000 square foot cocktail lounge and bar attached to it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that kind of came, uh, we've taken over the space four years ago. Uh, we started then building it 13 months with uh, the city for our building development permits. Mm-hmm. Uh, not great, but kind of a usual story for people around here. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, then uh, two years ago, we opened. So I think it was November 2017 we opened. Wow. Uh, and we've been open to the public now for a while. We do cocktails Thursday, Friday, Saturday night and events. And then we also sell in private liquor stores around the province and then direct with the licensees, bars and restaurants too. Yeah. And so what what do you think, like, so you've been running this, you've been mm-hmm. distilling for a while, but you've been running this this yeah. company for a, for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. What do you think is like your biggest, has been your biggest challenge, like not just in the distilling part of it, but the business side of it? So the business side of it has been the biggest challenge. Right. Uh, the distilling side of it is something I really enjoy. <coughs> Excuse me. And is something that I, you know, I learned as a skill and I've been developing for about 12 years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've obviously had a lot more experience in the last few years with our own distillery and refining our products. Um, the concept of the distillery is expressions of rye grain. So we actually use uh, organic rye from BC. That's the main input into everything we do. We do a rye whiskey, a rye-based gin, a whole bunch of different stuff. <coughs> Excuse me, but the um, the business side of it, the hardest part, has been learning the business side. I mean, I've been around businesses my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, to actually take the step as a business owner, I don't know if I couldn't have done it without boxing to tie the two together. Really, the mental toughness and discipline I learned in boxing have really helped me. Life um, lessons. <laughs> there is times in the last two years when I have questioned why the hell I did this. Right, uh, it is not an easy thing for anybody. I don't think to open a business, especially in Vancouver. Um, I definitely made some mistakes for sure. Uh, there's things that I've learned. I spent all my own money on it. Mm-hmm. That's something you don't want to do. <laughs> um, yeah. Makes living after that pretty difficult. Right. Uh, and yeah, there's been a lot of challenges with it. Um, would I do it again? Probably. Yeah. Uh, would I have done it differently? Probably. Of course. <laughs> you know, hindsight. Hindsight. You mm-hmm. know, it's a, you learn so much through going through the experience. And so it's called Resurrection Spirits. Mm-hmm. And I, I sent you a, a list of questions before, but yeah. what exactly are you resurrecting here? Yeah. So that's tell, a really tell good me question. about the name. So um, the, the name is, 
quite funny for me because it cost me quite a bit of money. You trademarked it? No. Oh. (laughs) I got a speeding ticket when I thought of it, and I was in the States. Oh. If you get a speeding ticket in the States and you're a Canadian, it's a federal crime. And so it's very expensive to get out of the speeding ticket. So it cost me a few thousand dollars a speeding ticket. I didn't know that. I just come up with the name. Yeah, I didn't either. Wow. (laughs) So anyways, uh, I'm still allowed to go back to the States, but um, I had to pay, get a lawyer and get it it paid off when I got back here. Uh, I actually ended up getting handcuffed and thrown in the back of a cruiser. I was not going that fast. I was going over the speed limit. Wow. (laughs) Um, Anyways, so it's an expensive name. So it was me and actually uh, one of my original business partners who's not involved anymore, uh, but he was at the distilling school with me, and we were trying to come up with what we'd call a distillery. And when we came up with Resurrection, the idea was almost everybody in North America, and actually really around the world, even if you look back at Europe too, had a still as a piece of equipment in their house. It was a way to preserve uh, grain, fruit, anything that had was near its end, its life cycle. You know, you'd eat it, you'd use it different ways. Dry it was one way of preserving it. But distilling was a way to basically preserve it into perpetuity. You have something, once it's been distilled... It's like an alternative to refrigeration or life. sometimes before refrigeration. Exactly. Okay. It was another method of preserving and using all of the um, grain or fruit or whatever you were producing, right? So, or had available. Um, so, uh, I, for me, it was kind of the idea of di- resurrecting this concept of having people understand distilling and also being able to do it for themselves. Uh-huh. So, it, when distilling got centralized in Canada, I think it was the 1940s or 50s, to Gimli, Manitoba, as well as uh, in Quebec, there was almost no distilling anywhere else in Canada. And growing up, it was this huge mystery that surrounded it. People, like the first thing that people say to me when I say that I'm a distiller, they say, you're going to blow yourself up. And I'm like, <laughs> it's possible. Maybe with my barbecue and stuff right. up in the Okanagan, there's definitely a part. I mean, you have high proof alcohol and flame. And open flame, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's a danger there for sure. But I mean, distilling has been refined over the last few hundred years, even longer, uh, to get better and better at it. I always say to people, it's not hard to make alcohol. It's hard to make good alcohol. Uh, and the, the process of distilling is really quite simple, but it's being refined and refined and refined to make better and better alcohol. We make better alcohol now than we did 200 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Everything has improved. The process has improved. The technique has improved. The products have improved overall. Yeah. And so really it was about resurrecting this old style of it, bringing it to today, and kind of going from there. Plus there's a play on words, resurrecting your spirits. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so you've taken me on a tour. It was an amazing place. I absolutely love your your shop. It's incredible. Um, You took us upstairs to your barrel room. And you had some some fancy ass barrels up in there. Tell us about like the so, history of some of these barrels, because yeah. the 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 experience of the spirits were incredible. Mm-hmm. Some some best yeah. mem- most memorable experience I had cool. with spirits. Yeah. But um, tell the folks like what like some some of your like barrels that you're proud of and mm-hmm. the history behind those. <coughs> Excuse me. So. This is one of my favorite myths and or pieces of information to give people as a distiller is that. Whiskey, cognac, rum, all the spirits you know, the only reason they're brown is because they've either been aged in wood or they have an additive added back to them. In rum's case, something not bad like molasses. Mm -hmm. In some whiskeys' cases, (coughs) blended Canadian whiskey. You get things, color, caramel, synthetic flavoring, all these other additives. Uh. So in the States, there's laws that what pertain to what's called a true whiskey. A true whiskey has to be made from grain. It has to be aged in wood. You're not allowed to add anything else to it. 
right. that's it. Okay. So when you talk about whiskey, wood is the flavor of whiskey, uh, charred wood in specific. To be called bourbon, it has to be made on American soil. It has to be 51 to 80% corn. The other percentage can be made up of other true grains, barley, wheat, rye, and some triticale, whatever true grains there are. Uh, you have to age it then in heavily charred, specifically American oak, specifically, for three years minimum. Wow. That is bourbon. Okay. In Canada, we have some proprietary laws, laws i.e. to be called whiskey in Canada, it has to be made on Canadian soil. And a percentage of it has to be aged in full-size wood for a minimum of three years. Okay. Because of this rule about a percentage, they're allowed to add any amount of anything they want. So apparently uh, some of the big whiskeys out there are as little as like 20, 15, 20% actual whiskey. The rest is corn alcohol, neutral grain spirit, spirit color, caramel, synthetic flavoring. Right. So these and are why all is that? I mean, that's it's probably it's come down to the... Consistency of flavor and oh, cost. Okay. They can make it yeah. cheap. You know what I mean? And it's uh, a lot less expensive to put 80% corn alcohol in it than 100% organic rye grain. Grain. Yeah, okay. Because it comes down to the economics of it all. The economics of it and the scalability as well. They're these big companies. It's like anything. You know, you you look at chain restaurants versus an individual chef. A chain restaurant, you know, they will consistently produce average food. But you don't ever leave a chain restaurant and go, oh, that was the most memorable meal I've ever had. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a chef, you know, there's hands-on stuff that they've done that will make your your experience and their food unique. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what a craft distillery and or craft brewer differential advantage over the big people actually is. It's actually our only advantage. Other than that, the taxes, the, the red tape with the government, all the stuff we have to go through, it's insane. It's like, you know, it's almost inexplicable at times. Yeah, and you've had you've you've got some old ass barrels up in your loft too, oh, yeah, right? Sorry, like what? No, it's fine. There, I'm, yeah. This is what I'm here for. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So what we've done is because uh, uh, back to the bourbon, bourbon has to be used brand new, heavily charred American oak barrels. Okay. They can't use them a second time. So after they've been aged for three, seven, whatever, however many years they're used for, they then get sold to a secondary market. There's actually barrel brokers in the states that not just bourbon barrels, but they get used barrels from all over the world. Right. Red wine. Port, Isla Scotch, uh, Sherry, whatever. I'd imagine there, that'd be a huge industry just on itself, just it barrel is. broken. That, yeah, there's probably five plus barrel brokers in the States. Wow. It is a big industry in the States. Wow, now. okay. And so they play a middleman between the distillers who are done with the barrels and distillers, brewers, or other people that want to use them. So barrels get used for different purposes than brewing. They want to maybe finish an IPA in a rye whiskey cask, for instance. Mm-hmm. That sounds great, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, that's going to give them a, a different, very different beer. For distillers, what's actually happened is wood is porous. And so over the three to seven years or whatever, the, it's, the bourbon has soaked into the barrels. We're actually getting some of the effect of that bourbon soaking in there, as well as the char, mm-hmm. as well as the natural sugars and vanillins that are in the wood, too. So it, when anything ever, any spirit goes into a barrel, it's clear. So this is the biggest misconception. People are like, oh, you made whiskey. It's like, yeah, well, no, we made white whiskey and or white dog or white lightning. Mm-hmm. That is then needs to be aged to become whiskey. Ah. It takes time. And it takes really on those flavors of the wood, mm-hmm. the char and all these other things. And over the years, it's breathing, mellowing, and also concentrating. You lose a little bit of what's called angel's share, about 3 to 5% every year of your spirit. Mm-hmm. But that's concentrating the rest of it down, alcohol and the flavor too. So... You lose a bit, but you're gaining in flavor and these other things as well. So the the barrels that we have upstairs, we've got uh, used bourbon barrels. We've got some from Breckenridge Bourbon, Buffalo Trace. We've also got uh, used Cabernet uh, red wine barrels. We plan 
making it money to be able to do quite a lot more uh, with the barrel aging. I would love to do a Isla Cass finished rye whiskey where you get this smoke and spice going together. Oh, wow. And yeah, I don't want to tell you too many of my ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've got a whole <laughs> bunch of, uh, of, of other ideas for yeah. the barrel aging on our program too. I love that so much. And yeah, so, it's pretty exciting. so tell me, so if it's, so you're saying you called it a white whiskey, that's just before yeah. it's been barrel aged. Is that, so it's been distilled yeah. as whiskey, but it's not yes, technically whiskey. Exactly. Because, okay. And the, the, there's a reason is, is like, I can make vodka from rye. I can make white whiskey from rye. Okay. And so what's the difference? Yeah, please. <laughs> the difference is the distilling technique. Okay. And so if we have a combination, so it's got what's called a whiskey helmet on one side and a rectification or a vodka column on the other. The vodka column has a series of plates in it. It's basically for stripping out a lot of flavor from the base, organic, whatever it is, and also creating a very high alcohol content. So that is essentially for making a vodka. Technically, by law, I think it's 94 ABV and above you have to distill it okay. to. Mm -hmm. And what you've done is then stripped out the majority of the flavor, but you're left with a very clean, good viscosity, and so on and so forth spirit. Mm -hmm. That's vodka. If I take the exact same rye wash, and instead of running it through that column, what I do is I run it twice through our, what's called a whiskey helmet. Instead of having like a series of plates in it, it's just one open space, and it's a certain shape that's supposed to capture the flavors you're looking for in the whiskey. Whiskey gets distilled twice, a stripping run to get away from the grain, and then a spirit run to make the final white whiskey. It only gets distilled to 65 ABV. Okay. So if you look at the difference between 95 and 65, you've got 30 ABV there. What's happening is you're actually leaving a lot more of the uh, congeners, bits and bobs, that are going to add flavor to the whiskey once it's barrel-aged. White whiskey is not that great. It tastes much better after it's been barrel-aged. Okay. Vodka is drinkable today coming off the still as a clear spirit. So as a craft distiller, we have to sell stuff now. So our answer to vodka is actually we created a white rye. It's not a white whiskey. It's not a vodka. We distill it to about 90. It's not quite as high as a vodka is, mm -hmm. but getting that texture viscosity is a high-quality vodka, but stripping it's... out a lot of the rye flavor, but we're still left with the backbone of it. Okay. The idea of this That's why it's, like, tolerable. Expressions of rye <laughs> okay. grain. Yeah. And so we don't want to, like, get good organic express, uh, rye grain and strip every, all the flavor out of it. The idea was let's create a product that is maintaining some of that flavor but still has the mixability of a high-quality vodka mm -hmm. texture viscosity-wise. So that's where the white rye sort of fills in. Okay. We do a rye-based gin. I think it's one of only three we know of in the world right now. Wow. Um, it's unique in that way, mm -hmm. but it's rye-based. But what we did is we picked five select botanicals to work with the flavors in the rye. As a cocktail bartender in my background, instead of you know working with a vodka that basically is like a blank canvas, you can make it taste like anything you want. Mm. You want saffron or mango? Go get saffron or mango. Put it in. Bam, there's your vodka, saffron, mango gin. But with gin or with whiskey or cognac, whatever, or rums, they have nuances and flavors of their own. As a cocktail bartender, they're uh, more fun spirits because they're more of a challenge to mix. Ah, okay. Same thing when we made our gin. I basically took the flavors we have in rye and then tried to find botanicals. You have to have juniper to do gin. But other than that, that I felt were supportive of the rye without overcomplicating it, still having it as a rye-based gin. So it's the juniper is the star as it's gin now, but the rye is still there as the character of it. I love that so much. Cool. And what if you named this? Uh, what you call it? What is it? It's a rye, rye based. We just call it our BC dry gin. Okay. Yeah. So uh, people often people don't even know it's rye based. We found that a little bit. You know, people have a bit of an association with their high school drinking habits of rye or <laughs> gin or whatever it may be. So uh, I think that you know it's. I love people tasting it. 
enjoying it and then explaining to them how they make it. It does say that it's rye spirit in the bottle, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not something I advertise until after this kind of because I love seeing people's reaction. <laughs> yeah, because the, you want to get them like an authentic experience versus like the notion, the, exactly. the preconceived pretend. notion yeah. that they may have going into something <laughs> they tasted earlier. And what's your favorite part? Like I've seen, because you you do it from scratch. Obviously, you run the books, but you also you hire you hire servers and staff. You you uh, distill I, it I yourself. Don't run the books. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So as I was gonna say about the business side of things yeah. being tough, uh, I've got a business part- partner, Eudora, and she is uh, she does the books. Okay. She's my business operations manager. Um, I don't do this without her. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, I, then you focus on uh, the, the stupid dis- ideas. Yeah, yeah, right. I love the dumb ideas. She does <laughs> she, all the practical, she's realistic like, things. Uh, you can't afford yeah. this, and you'd be like, yeah. "What? Why? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This sucks." No, but uh, I think you know, in any business, um, especially of this scale, it is very difficult for one person to have all of the tools and skills to be successful. Right. Uh, I think you have to surround yourself with people that are talented have a great work ethic and are also great at the things that you are terrible at and, we, and or aren't as strong at. Probably understanding yeah. that you needed a partner or you need, you need help in these certain categories. Yeah. Like that is probably like the best thing that could have happened for your business, right? It's like the self-awareness behind it all. You know, yeah. And I think, you know, some people are more egotistical or whatever where they feel like, oh, I can do everything myself. It's like you can try to do everything yourself, but by taking a step back and allowing other people to do the things that they're good at your business i think will be better overall right you know um i know you know uh, that i'm not the greatest with the numbers and the other side of things and i turn to people that are experts and or you know trusted to be able to help me with those things too yeah and you're grateful for that oh yeah (laughs) eternally yeah Yeah. i couldn't have done it without them right so yeah and then what's then what is your favorite part about like if, if it's something that's just tiny like if you're if you're just mixing cocktails or if you're um distilling in the back room there like what's what's your it just it could be tiny or it could just be like the whole thing but what what's your favorite little thing that you love doing or just like when you walk in you're just like yes i get to do this today it's the same reason i bartended for 20 years yeah and there's a moment of truth when you give someone a drink or in this case now our spirits uh where they can't lie to you Right. So it's like, you know, people will be like, oh, it's really good. It's like, you, you hate that. <laughs> <laughs> like, Looks like it. I will yeah. literally take that out of your hand right now and give you something you will like. So right. our spirits, hopefully, you know, not everybody's going to like it. I've had people say to my face, this is disgusting and stuff. <laughs> and it's like, yes, you're not used to drinking spirits. Sorry. Yeah. It's not your thing. Right. So some people it's not. And it's hard as a business owner. And, you know, it hits your ego a little bit for sure when people say things like that. But it's also a question of this moment that when they love it, it's undeniable and their face lights up. And, you know, I love cocktail bartending for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's really the thing that tied to it, me to it for years was this moment of honesty. No matter who they are, no matter badass or awesome or, you know, whatever, you know, shy or whatever their personality is, they can't deny that moment. Right. And I love that moment. That's kind of my thing, my reason to it. Boxing and cocktails have yeah. a th- way of bringing the <laughs> truth out, don't they? <laughs> they do. Yeah, it's funny. I've I've actually called them both truth serum at right. different points in time. And I love that so I much. Don't know how that's I the got... name of this episode, by the way. So that's definitely it. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how I got caught between these two things that have strange similarities, but they're not really related. You know. Um, uh, my whole life, you know, I always joke, my birthday's December 5th, 
and Prohibition ended on December 5th of 1933. No way. Everybody got alcohol again on that day. Hey. So I was like, maybe I was supposed to be doing <laughs> you're this. You're like, you're welcome, know. world. Uh, yeah, exactly. Or, or maybe you're like, thank oh, you, world. Thank <laughs> you, world, anymore. Yeah, definitely. But, um, you know, somehow these two things have related. The fact that we get to run a boxing tournament where I basically combine the hospitality industry and the love of boxing. I don't know how I was lucky enough to get caught in the center of this sort of whirlwind, but I do feel very, um, very lucky and, you know, really thankful that I've got to put uh, and two things that I, I really love uh, doing together. And I had an opportunity to both of them. And dream, dream come true. Or you're just living it. You're just living the dream. I, That's you just... know, it doesn't always feel like a dream <laughs> with the business, um, but it is definitely there's days when I wake up and I'm just I know how lucky I am. And I really appreciate the fact that I got to find things in my life that I love. Yeah. yeah. And and so we've had so many good gold nuggets from from this. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you would if you could um, summarize like for for business owners or aspiring entrepreneurs, like what would be your top two tips or top two words of wisdom for them? It's funny because before I started my own business, I asked a lot of people this question, too. Right. And it, I think that everybody's answer is different. And I think that everybody's experience and journey is different. So my top two things might not be your top two things, you mm-hmm. know. Um, it might not work for you, but it worked for me. Kind I of think, thing. yeah, maybe. But, and you know, even people that have opened other distilleries, their journey to opening a distillery or a brewery were, you know, to similar, were very different, mm-hmm. you know. And they had different experiences with the city or got a different inspector or whatever it else, else it may be. But I think that my two biggest advices of going into business would be, don't use all your own money. Raise money. Right. And when you raise money, raise two to three times as much as you think. And every single person in this industry laughs in my face. And then I watch them try to open their business. And they come back to me and go, oh, my God, this is costing me three times the amount I thought it was going to cost. Right. All the things you don't think of and you can't think of. You know, um, I don't even want to say, but we put in the amount of plumbing we had to put into our building and the amount of electrical all of the money we spent on that, you know, I had budgets for those things. They were doubled. Right. You know, um, the t- timeline for equipment, you know, you think, oh, it says it'll be here in three months. Sometimes it takes five months. That'll put you back the other rent that your or the, your lease payments are at and so on and so forth, too. So I would really say raise, come up with a great idea that you really want to do. Be passionate about it. Raise enough money. Don't put all your own money into it right. and raise more money than you think you need to raise because you don't want to be in a situation. We had to lease back against our equipment with the bank. We need more money, to, more working capital to move forward. We're still looking for another investor. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say, yeah, if you've got a great idea, go for it. Don't be afraid. You know, it's a challenge, but yeah. prepare yourself for what it's actually going to entail. Mm-hmm. Okay. I love that so much. And um, so I have one more question. We're going to wrap up here, okay. but yeah. um, uh but uh, while while I'm getting my question out, because I wrote it down, um, it's a long one. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, where can people find you, and where's your socials? And you you said you're the address of the. Uh, of, yeah, of we're at shop. 1672 Franklin uh, yeah. for Resurrection Spirits. Uh, the uh, distillery has a cocktail bar there, like I was saying too. So you guys can come on down on the weekends, so Thursday, Friday, Saturdays for that. We're also at a bunch of private liquor stores across the province. We're not in the BCLDB. That's a whole other story. 
we'll touch on that in another episode, the yeah. Bob Cole episode. <laughs> yep. Um, Legacy Liquor Store, Jack's Liquor Store, Barazan Liquor Stores across the province with one of its latest locations, uh-huh. as well as select bars and restaurants um, in the city. I love it. And at Resurrection Spirits on pretty much all social yeah, channels. Yeah, Resurrection Spirits. We mostly do the Instagram thing right now, mm-hmm. so I think that's what most people uh, see. Plus, we have beautiful drinks and stills and everything. It's fun stuff to look at. Too. Gorgeous equipment, gorgeous cocktails. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. One last question. Uh-oh. All right. I don't know how many podcasts you listen to. Uh, uh, is, this the, is this the first one you've been on? First uh, yes. of all? Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's good. So yeah. the last question is, what's what's your what's your favorite podcast? That's none of your business. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Brian Grant, cool. thank you so much for uh, Thanks, for me. being on this podcast. Yeah. Much appreciated. My pleasure. All thank right. You. <laughs> See ya. See ya. so much for listening to another episode of Nanya. Please share this episode with your network and shoot me a comment on Twitter at Skylar underscore Dietz or on our Instagram page at Nanya Podcast. So until next time, have a great day.